Ladies and gentlemen, Larry at the piano. No relation to Dino at the piano. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Just a little sidebar before I begin. You know, it, it blesses me when I see members of this body out there in the world integrating their faith with their work. And so going to Mike's banquet on Thursday night, which was kind of the near the end of the event that we, he spoke of and we prayed for, and seeing Mike in his element there, you know, doing his thing, networking. Mike is the consummate networker, and seeing him relate to people. And, you know, it, it, was, it was really a very secular event, but it was a good event. There was a lot of good things happening there. And, you know, Mike's a man who really desires to bring his faith into his work. And it blesses me when I see Mike do that, but also when I see others of you do that. It feels like we're getting something here. You know, we're getting things. We're he- you know, you're listening, you're hearing, you're learning. You know, that blesses me to see. In uh, John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the truth that we can abide in our Lord Jesus. Father, we're also cognizant of the truth that apart from Jesus, cut off from the vine, we can do nothing. Help us, Father, now as we ponder these words and other passages of Scripture from your word this morning and consider the idea that we are to be holy, but we must be holy in you. We thank you for this time, Father. We ask you to bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Jim Garrett gave us a great admonition from the words of Jesus, including the passage from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This week, we're looking at the same coin, but we're going to look at the flip side of this coin. We see from this passage in Matthew that it's clear that we as followers of Christ are called to perfection or holiness. It's just as clear from Scripture, as we'll note this morning too, that this is not something we can just sit back and expect to happen in our lives. We can't just sit there and say, okay, God, here I am, make me holy. Yes, a biblical command assumes our involvement. It assumes our cooperation. But the flip side of this coin is that what it takes for us to attain to holiness is something we just do not have in and of ourselves. Just as the very salvation we proclaim in Christ is a gift of His grace, so is the ability to grow and progress in perfection or holiness in our lives. This is the lifelong process that theologians call sanctification. It's the fancy theological name for being made more like Jesus. And as Jesus noted in the passage we read at the outset from John chapter 15, without him we can do what? Nothing. We can't do anything without him. The primary meaning here is that we can do nothing of spiritual value without him. The context in John 15 is bearing fruit for him. It's, if we're a part of Jesus the vine, we can bear fruit and we can make progress in holiness. But if we're apart from the vine, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. 
The expression is one, therefore, strongly implying dependence. The Son of God was the original source of life. He also, by his work as mediator, gives life to the world. And it is by the same grace and agency that it is continued in the Christian. We see that the reason why others fail of being holy is because they are unwilling to look to him and seek grace and strength from him who alone is able to give it. Think about farmers. This year, or really any year, but especially this year, many crops were down or failed this year because despite their best efforts, many farmers could do nothing apart from those things that only God could bring. In this case, the thing that God could bring that they couldn't bring was rain, right? A farmer knows he must diligently cultivate the soil. He has to plant. He has to fertilize. But apart from both the sunshine and rain that only God can bring, his crop will fail. In a very real sense, though farming is a cooperative effort, it's a joint venture between God and the farmer. In reality, the farmer is absolutely dependent on God. And if he didn't know that before, he knew it this year when we had this drought that we've been experiencing. So just as the farmer must cooperate, but also fully depend on God for his crop, we believers in Christ can and must cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is working in our lives in terms of holiness, but at the same time we must fully depend on God for our growth. That's where grace comes in. Now for most of us, once we've jumped that hurdle that we need to be saved by grace and grace alone, it's not hard to remember that we can't earn God's saving love. We all know that we're saved by grace through faith. It's after that's accomplished, it's after we begin to follow him, that we somehow quickly forget that the same grace that saved us also sanctifies us. The same grace that was expressed in the cross of Jesus, revealed so wonderfully and beautifully as he paid the penalty for our sin, is the grace that continues to work in our lives from the moment we trust in Christ for our salvation throughout the rest of our lives. Recently, I greeted a woman in our church on a Sunday morning, and she told me that the previous week she had skipped church because she was tired. She said this with kind of a sense of guilt, as if somehow God was probably mad at her, and maybe I'd be mad at her too. Isn't that how often so many of us see and relate to God? We don't do things we know we need to do, things that we know are good for us to do, like being in church, like reading the Word, like spending time in prayer, the basic spiritual disciplines, all worthy things. But when we don't do those, we kind of expect God to be mad at us, maybe even punish us somehow. Or the flip side of the coin is when we do these worthy spiritual things, we somehow have the idea that God owes us something, that good things should happen to us. Well, I, spent, I had a really good quiet time this morning, so it's going to be a really great day. There's nothing going to go wrong today. Because somehow we think we've earned something with God. Now, if you've been here very long, you know that I believe, you know that I have preached that being in church is vital to our faith. 
when we miss being in fellowship, when we miss hearing the word, when we miss worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we miss some very important things designed to help us grow in Christ. And when we make a habit of missing church, we can truly be in spiritual danger because the local church is one of the means of grace that God has given us to work in our lives to change us. So church is vitally important. But let's be careful here. Being in church does not earn us God's favor. God doesn't want us to be in church so that somehow we can earn his love. That's not why we come to church. There's other good reasons. God wants us to be here because he, well, we want to be here. Because we know that this is for our good. And we're grateful for what he's done for us. Think about this. Guilt is generally not a good long-term motivator. Let me say that again. Guilt is generally not a good long-term motivator. Grace is a much better motivator. I want to cooperate with the means of grace that God has given me to grow in Him. We see in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. Why would Paul need to tell us such a thing? Because we have a tendency to forget grace as God's means of changing us into his image of him making us holy. Because we have, most of us have, all of us have to some degree, a strong tendency to try to attain primarily by our own effort what we can attain only by His grace, through the work of His Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we fail, when we fail to do the things that we know we need to do, we forget that His grace is still sufficient for us, and thus we feel condemned. Of course, there is a difference between condemnation, on the one hand, which is from the enemy of our souls, and conviction, which is the moving of the Holy Spirit designed to motivate us and to change us. Now, time doesn't permit us to examine that idea at length this morning. That might be even a full sermon topic at some point. But suffice it to say that condemnation and guilt are the enemy's tools. They are not God's tools. The challenge for us is that they often feel the same, especially at first. So we have to learn to distinguish between conviction and condemnation. What we must remember in our pursuit of holiness throughout our Christian lives is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were already guilty when Christ died for us, when He extended grace to us. That means me, the ungodly, the sinner. That means you. And as Jim noted last week, while the call to Christians is clearly to attain to holiness, and perfection. This is not something we fully achieve this side of eternity. We are not in a saving relationship with God because of anything we do or don't do. Again, this is just as true after we are saved as before we are saved. Our relationship with God is based on what Jesus has already done for us. I'm reading a really good book by an author named Brian Chappelle. It's called Holiness by Grace. Some of the ideas in this sermon are from this book, and I want to quote directly from this book now. 
He writes thus, the imperative, what we are to do, rests on the indicative, who we are by virtue of our union with Christ. And this order is not reversible. We are not in a relationship with God because of what we do. That's God's imperatives. We do, what we do results from who we are. That's God's children. And we are God's children by his grace alone. He continues, we must understand how to separate our who from our do. Let me say that again. We must learn and understand how to separate our who from our do. What we do does not gain us God's affection. Who we are by virtue of his unconditional love constrains us through the power of our gratitude to obey him. If we ever invert these relationships, as is the instinctive natural impulse of all humanity, by assuming that who we are before God is a consequence of what we do for him, then we make God's love conditional. When we simply tell people to do good and not to do wrong, we can sometimes mistakenly leave them with the understanding that their work, the things that they do, or their level of holiness is what wins God's love. Now, we might do this with the best intentions, and I think most of the time we do, because God's Word does give us clear guidelines, even commands, about our behavior and our attitudes. But the message of the Gospel is not to be good. That may surprise some of you. The message of the gospel is that we are pathologically unable to be good apart from our trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin and then cooperating with his grace as he molds and shapes us into his image. Our behavior, our actions, our pursuit of holiness can and should flow from his love for us and our gratitude to him. But what we do or don't do cannot earn in any way or secure in any way God's love. Of course, as believers, we should know this, right? This is part of what the gospel tells us. This is part of why the gospel is the gospel. What does gospel mean? It means good news. But again, we have this innate need to return to our old ways of thinking, and we're not alone in this. This has been going on for at least 2,000 years. The Apostle Paul spent much of an entire epistle saying these same kinds of things to the Galatians. He had actually words of rebuke for them, just as strong as the words of rebuke that Jesus had for the Pharisees. And we know what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees. And it was for many of the same reasons. Paul called much of what the Galatians were relying on, he called them weak and worthless things. A quick look at Galatians shows us why when we try to keep laws or rules or strive for holiness as a means to earn God's favor, to earn his love, we are relying on things that are weak and worthless. And we are in reality relying on a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Again, because what does gospel mean? It means good news. How can it be good news for us to be right back where we were before Jesus came. To be dependent on weak and worthless rules to save us. That's where we were before Jesus came. The gospel of grace has really been a lot on my mind in these past several weeks. I think it's in part because of this book that I'm reading and some other things I'm reading. 
I think it's also partly because we're studying Romans in house church. And that's a book that really emphasizes the grace of God and our inability to get to God without grace. And it's also, as I recall, several conversations I've had with different individuals who were struggling with their own lack of ability to live up to the standards that they'd set for themselves. Now, again, let's be clear here. The standards they'd set up for themselves were not bad standards. Generally, they were godly standards. We have to be careful to emphasize that when we're talking about grace versus our own efforts, we're not talking about lawlessness. We're not talking about having no standards of life or conduct. What we're talking about is depending on our ability to live up these standards as our means of acceptance before God. For these people I've talked with, these standards were things that were designed to nurture their faith in the Lord. They were good disciplines. They were good things to do. They're things that many of us strive to maintain because they can, in fact, help us in our walk of faith. However, these individuals, when they failed, even in little ways, to maintain these disciplines, they fell into this weak and worthless things trap because they immediately felt condemned. And they believed, whether consciously or unconsciously, that they'd somehow damaged or forfeited their relationship with God. When you feel like that, it can lead to a downward slide really away from God because instead of responding to what might be the conviction of the Holy Spirit to get just get up, get back on the straight and narrow path, they responded to the enemy's condemnation, which told them, you blew it. And maybe you blew it so bad there's no coming back. So why try? As I pondered the marvel of God's grace and I considered that the gospel of Jesus Christ really is a gospel of grace, and I thought about the many Christians, sometimes including myself, who could easily slip into a performance kind of mentality of earning God's favor, I began to remember Paul's words to the Galatians. It's a book in which Paul draws a very clear contrast between the true gospel, which is a gospel of grace, and the false gospel that he confronted in Galatia, which was a gospel of keeping the law or a gospel of works. So let's spend a few minutes here on six key verses in Galatians, each illustrating principles about this disparity between law and grace. Let me also mention that where there were so many other passages of Scripture clearly illustrating the relationship between our pursuit of holiness on the one hand and God's equipping grace that enables us to pursue holiness, I couldn't include all of them in the sermon. That's why you have an insert in your bulletin this morning with these other passages of Scripture that kind of got voted off the island, didn't get into, they didn't make their way into this morning's sermon. One that we will look at this morning is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, which reads, I'm astonished, that's, what Paul, that's how Paul begins this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So here, what's Paul telling us? This so-called gospel the Galatians had slipped into due to the preaching of the Judaizers, it was a corrupted gospel. What the Judaizers were teaching the people in Galatia was that 
To be saved, these Gentile believers in Galatia had to follow Jewish rules and customs. They had to basically become culturally, socially, and um, literally, in many ways, Jews. The Judaizers' message completely undermined what Paul had taught them. They sabotaged the Galatians' understanding that salvation was a gift, not a reward for the things they do, the rules or customs that they follow. They essentially denied that Jesus' work on the cross was enough to save us. Paul said it was not only a different gospel, it was no gospel at all. It wasn't news. It was the same old, same old stuff, and it certainly wasn't good. The second passage I want to look at briefly is Galatians chapter 2, verse 21 through chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul wrote to the Galatians, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians. So he tells them in the first passage he's astonished, and then here he says, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? That was Paul's word here to the Galatians. And the theme here is that if we fall back into trying to earn our way to heaven, then Christ died for nothing. What a thing to consider. What a thing to consider. For us to insist somehow that our standing before God in eternity depends on how well we obey rules and regulations is to nullify, it's to make worthless the grace of God revealed by the death of Jesus on the cross. One writer noted, if righteousness comes by keeping the law, the cross was a futile gesture, the biggest mistake in the universe. And that's really true. If grace isn't the way we are to live, then the cross is useless. It's a futile gesture, the biggest mistake in the universe. Are we still in danger of acting as if Christ died for nothing? Think about it. Well, we as Christians certainly, we're not going to slip into Jewish ceremonial laws. We have a very natural tendency to replace that kind of pharisaical uh, Jewish legalism with our own kind of Christian legalism. Now, we don't do that here at this church. At least we, don't, we try not to, right? If we did, uh, Beth Troutman wouldn't have been up here leading worship in pants. You can't do that in some churches, right? Uh, Michelle, where, where'd she go? Michelle wouldn't have had any makeup on this morning. Can't do makeup. That's not Christian. You know, those are the kinds of things that people add, and this is part of what you do as Christians. You have to do these things. We have this tendency. When we do that, we give people, we give ourselves extra rules to obey. Philip Yancey wrote a book on grace, and in that book he wrote this, where legalism takes root, the prickly thorns of extremism eventually branch out. Legalism is a subtle danger because no one thinks of himself as a legalist. My own rules seem necessary. Other people's rules seem excessively strict. When we have extra laws, extra rules to obey, we're tacitly, if not expressly and consciously, somehow believing that we can earn God's favor 
by what we do. And when we do that, we are implicitly not trusting at that point in Christ's work on the cross for our salvation or for the ongoing work of changing us into his image, which we call sanctification. If we could be saved by being good, Paul's telling us here, if we could be changed simply by being good, then Christ did not have to die. If you ask most people, at least outside the church and sometimes even in churches, what do you have to do to get to heaven? What are they probably going to say? Be good, right? They're going to say, well, I need to be good. But in response to this idea, Paul said, you foolish Galatians. I think that's a pretty strong statement, pretty strong language here. Do you think he was trying to get their attention? He was telling the Galatians that to embrace a doctrine which essentially rendered Jesus' death on the cross unnecessary was totally irrational. It was foolish. And then as he goes on to demonstrate in this passage, he asked them four questions to demonstrate convincingly that Jesus' sacrifice and faith in that sacrifice is God's good news of salvation, as well as the way he uses to change us and to make us holy after we're justified before God. He asked the Galatians, for example, how did they receive the Spirit? Of course, that's a rhetorical question, right? Because he asked when they were converted, how did that happen? Was it by faith or was it by works? And of course, the obvious answer, it was by faith. And then he asked them, how is God sanctifying them or how is he working in their lives to change them into the image and likeness of Christ after their initial salvation. And he's assuming that the, the Galatians would clearly answer that they were saved by faith, of course. But he asked them how, if they're foolish enough to think that somehow now, after they're saved, why shouldn't they continue to operate in the same fashion? That's his line of argument here. Why would God have them begin their life of faith with one way, only to go back to an old, and tired and failed way to change them into his image. There was and is no provision under the law to sanctify any more than there is a provision under the law to justify us, to save us in Christ. So what Paul's saying here is when you've come so far forward, why would you take a step backward? You've moved this far, why go back? Why go back to where you were? People still feel insecure in their faith, in God's grace, to change them. Why is this? Because faith alone seems too easy. Grace alone seems too easy. People still try to get close to God by doing things, by following rules. Christians ought to know better, but even we tend to slip back into this performance mentality before God. Again, quoting Philip Yancey, he says, by instinct, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. Grace sounds a startling note of contradiction, of liberation, and every day I must pray anew for the ability to hear its message. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers us a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Ask most people what they must do to get to heaven, and most people reply, be good. But the gospel contradicts that answer. All we have to do is cry, help. 
All we have to do is cry help, recognize our need for God. The third passage is in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and it again shows how strongly that Paul rejected the works approach to sanctification. He said, if we try to get to heaven this way, we're under a curse. He writes, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So what Paul's telling us here is that as the NIV and the English Standard Version both say, relying on observing the law, you're under a curse, just as the Jews were in the Old Testament. The idea that breaking even one commandment, after all, what does it say? It says we must continue to do everything or all things written. That's our standard. We have to do everything. So breaking even one commandment brings a person under condemnation. Well, guess what? Everyone stands condemned apart from Christ. Everyone has broken the commandments. The law can't do anything to reverse the condemnation. But thanks be to God. Jesus took the curse of the law on himself when he hung on the cross. That gives us the opportunity to be freed from the curse. The fourth passage from Galatians is chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, where Paul compares being shut up under sin without Christ and being caught in a law-keeping approach to God to slavery, to prison. They're both like slavery. They're both like prison. Galatians chapter 3, 22. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. Locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So here we see Paul's picture of two different kinds of prison. We're prisoners of sin before we come to know Christ. Like prison, sin owns us at that state without Christ. It controls us. It confines us. It restricts our movements. It tells us where we can go and what we can do. In the same way, Paul says in verse 23 in the passage we just read, before God's way of faith in Christ came to pardon us from sin, we were also held in a prison of law, just like the prison of sin. Law can own us. It can control us. It can confine. It can restrict our movements. It tells us where we can go and what we can do. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, that doesn't mean the law was a bad thing. Paul says that before faith came, the law had a purpose. Matthew Henry writes that the law did not teach a living, saving knowledge, but by its rites and ceremonies, especially by its sacrifices, it pointed to Christ that they might be justified by faith. Paul's point in calling the law a prison is not to downplay its role, but to tell us that in Jesus we have been released from that prison. Now, isn't that good news? If you've been released from prison, he's saying, why do you want to go there again? Andy, do you want to go back? Anybody who's been to jail 
been to prison, doesn't want to go back there. Instead, it's kind of like we choose to go 65 miles an hour on the highway, not because the law tells us we must go no faster, but because we have a conviction that it's safer and it's better for us. We don't do it just because we're afraid of getting caught or slapped down by the law. The fifth verse is Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul calls the rules we keep, and we mentioned this a moment ago, weak and worthless, or weak and miserable principles, at least as far as justifying us before God or changing us into his image. Galatians 4, verse 9 says, Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Again, we see pretty strong language here from Paul, don't we? Calling these things weak and miserable principles, weak and worthless elemental things, it says in the New American Standard, weak and beggarly elements, as it says in the King James. Paul's trying to be certain to tell the Galatians, making sure they fully grasp the essence, the importance of what they're doing by returning to the law as a way to gain God's favor. Did they understand that they'd really be going back into a type of religious slavery? Was this what they really wanted? If so, why would they be attracted to a system that was weak because it had no power to justify us, no power to change us into holy people? And last but not least, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, this is the really good news part about our incredible freedom in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. So turning back to the law ruins grace. Turning back to the law ruins grace. It again burdens us with this yoke of slavery, slavery to law, slavery to sin, and it makes Jesus of no value at all. He died to set us free from sin and to free us from depending on this long list of rules and regulations for our standing before him. Now, of course, we always have to remember that in this freedom, we're not free to do whatever we want. That would lead back to a different kind of slavery, to our selfish desires that Jesus also freed us from. That's the other thing that Christ set us free for. We trade the slavery to the law for slavery to sin. Instead, thanks to what Jesus did for us, we're free and able to do what we couldn't possibly have done before, to live unselfishly and to pursue holiness in him by his grace. So when we say we're free and we use that freedom as an excuse to get our own way, to indulge our own desires, to do whatever we want, we're just falling back into sin, a prison of its own kind. But Paul makes clear here in Galatians, and we see this many other places in the New Testament, 
that it's wrong to put a burden of law-keeping on Christians, again, for the express purpose of earning God's love and favor. In addition to how turning to the law ruins grace, it creates a new obligation because it says if we rely on the law or any laws, we're, re- we're required to obey the whole law. In other words, if, if you say, okay, I'm going I'm to keep this law, well, that means you've got to keep all of them, and you've got to keep all of them perfectly. If we depend on it for justification or if we pe- depend on it to change us into a holy people, it's all or nothing. So that's what we're choosing. We can choose on the one hand the way of rules, doing it ourselves, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, or we can choose on the other hand the way of grace, God's enabling power equipping us to be holy in Him. It's all or nothing. We can't have it both ways, Paul's telling us here in Galatians. We can't have it both ways and be true to Scripture, true to the only true gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if we choose the way of grace, the true gospel, Paul already noted that our life is not our own. So freedom in Christ does not mean freedom to sin with impunity. Just as much as he set us free from the law, he set us free from sin. It's for freedom from both that Christ has set us free. That's why there is no license to sin implied here in the freedom God gave us in Christ. As we close, let's consider prayerfully where you and I fit into this picture this morning. Do we live by rules or do we impose rules maybe on others for the express purpose of hoping to gain God's favor or acceptance? Or do we pervert the freedom that we do have from the law, and it's a very real freedom, and use that freedom to do things that are just as clearly described in Scripture as sin? Do we do one or both? And do we do things like that? Let's not be in either extreme. Let's not be in either extreme when it comes to the grace of God. Let's remember it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's accept this grace as the freeing, empowering, liberating gift of God that He intended it to be for us and as His equipping to be holy in Him. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the gift of grace. We're grateful, Father, for the freedom that we have in Christ. Father, help us in those times, in those moments when we bow to that human tendency we all have to slip back into that mentality that we have to do things or not do things in order to earn your favor. Help us to remember in that moment that Jesus has already done it. Help us to walk in who we are in Christ rather than in what we do. Father, we know that as we walk with who we are in Christ, as we remember your saving grace, and we remember your equipping grace, equipping us to be holy, We know that as we do that, Father, you will indeed change us, transform us even more into the image and likeness of Christ. And that's our heart's desire, Father, is to be more like Jesus. But help us to do that, Father. Help us to grow in Christ-likeness in the way of grace and attain to holiness in you, in him, in him, in him, Father God. Help us to remember that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.